Good evening. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 1. We uh, come in our evening series to the uh, 21st question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and uh, it tells us about the two distinct natures of Christ. He is both God and man. Now, when we began our morning series uh, in the book of John, we actually set aside uh, verses, uh, ch- chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 for Christmas Eve, and then we changed to preaching through Luke. So we never actually preached uh, this text in our morning series, so now uh, it fits perfectly in what we're focusing on tonight and answering the question uh, from this catechism, uh, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being in the eternal Being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Now, as we go from that idea to John 1, what we're going to see uh, in this text is that Jesus is the fullness of God in the flesh, and therefore we should declare His glory, grace, and truth. And so as we come to this text, we have the opportunity to see three things. First of all, we're going to see his glory. And then we're also going to savor his grace and lastly, show his gospel. Please follow as I read uh, just these few verses here. uh, John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. This is the word of our God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let us pray. Father, we come to this text and we are mindful of our deep and profound need for your Spirit to give us the eyes of faith, to help us to understand what you want us to learn tonight, to mold and shape us. And to help us to make you known to this dark and lost world. Father, be with the one who preaches. For he is weak and incapable of doing all that is necessary. But you are greater. May your power be shown even through weakness. We ask for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, last Sunday evening, uh, Pastor Jeff had preached on uh, Genesis chapter 3, and uh, what we saw in that chapter in verse 24, it said, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, why were Adam and Eve restricted? Why were they... um, banished from the presence of God at that particular point? Why was there an angel put in the place with a flaming sword? I like to kind of call him, you know, a uh, 
Jedi with a lightsaber, right? I mean, where else do you see a flaming sword in the Bible? But, um, you know, why was this angel blocking the way to access with God? I mean, at one point, Adam and Eve had enjoyed perfect fellowship of God, even walking with him in the cool of the day. But by the rebellion and their sin, they could not remain in God's holy presence, lest his wrath break out against them. But did God leave his people at that point without his presence at all until Jesus came? And we know the answer is no, that God revealed himself all throughout the Old Testament. He revealed himself to Noah, then to Abraham, then to Moses. And then after the Exodus, the Lord led them by his Shekinah glory cloud uh, in the day and by his pillar of fire at night. And he led Israel to a place and gave them the plans for a tabernacle a place that God would dwell among his people. And I hope you can see that all of redemption is about restoring person-to-person fellowship with our holy God. But the tabernacle and later the temple had safeguards in place regarding direct access to the holiness of God. His law warned Israel about being flippant and lackadaisical in approaching our holy God. The law stated that only once a year on the day of atonement could the high priest enter the most holy place and that with blood. Now, if the priest goofed up, then he would be dead. And they actually tied a rope around his ankle just in case he did die so that they could drag his body out without having to enter the most holy place themselves and die. God's worship is serious business. But then after Israel rebelled yet again, the temple was destroyed and they were exiled to Babylon. Now even though they came back and built a second temple, Israel viewed themselves remaining in exile and that temple was also destroyed in 70 AD. God's people had once had direct access to God in the garden, but they lost it. They enjoyed law-mediated presence of God in the tabernacle, but they lost it. And even more important than knowing God's law and following it, the people wanted the presence of God's glory among them once again. And so it is into that context that John is speaking and writing so that we first of all get to see his glory. Look again at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we can't understand verse 14 unless we link it with the very first verse in this chapter when John said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is saying in this chapter explicitly that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, though we were exiled by our sin, God pursued us. Jesus came to save sinners like us. Other translations don't say that he dwelt. They say that he tabernacled among us. 
God had once again come. This time veiled not by a large curtain, but veiled in human flesh. We can't see God face to face, lest his wrath break out against us. But we could look at Jesus. We could talk to him, walk with him, hear him teach, see him do miracles. John tells us we have seen the Father's glory. But wait a minute. When you think of glory, what do you think of? You might think of that pillar of fire shining bright. You might think of the Shekinah glory cloud, something amazing to see. But that's not the only type of glory that's displayed in Scripture when it comes to God's glory. God's definition of glory goes beyond just the outwardly shiny. Jesus did demonstrate the glory of God's power, right? He did miraculous healings. He multiplied the loaves and the fish, and he calmed a storm. Now, they definitely saw the glory of God's power in that way, but What brings God the most glory is when God displays the fullness of his character for all to see. Jesus, the Son of God, came full of grace and truth. Now, all the displays of power that Jesus showed were tempered by his grace. The justice of God on Mount Sinai quaked. And it caused incredible fear among the people of God. But when Jesus had grace-filled power, he drew people to himself. He brought them by supernatural healing and help of all different kinds. But Jesus also taught truth. We read in all of the Gospels in some place that they were astonished at his teaching. That he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So, yes, we sinful preachers try to proclaim truth, but nothing can compare to Jesus who is the Word of God in the flesh. He embodied everything he preached perfectly. That's never happened before. God's presence was with his people once again veiled in the flesh of a carpenter's son. But with the eyes of faith, we can see the broader significance of all that John is telling us in his gospel. John is very concerned with showing us that Jesus is the true tabernacle. He came from heaven to earth to tabernacle among us. If we consider the whole book of John from the lens of the biblical theological lens, he wants us to see Jesus fulfilling the purpose of every piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Using the order that John gives us in his gospel, we see, first of all, the table of showbread. Right As we saw this morning in John 6, Jesus declared himself what? He is the bread of life, fulfilling that imagery in the tabernacle. Next is the lampstand. 
Just flip forward a few pages to John chapter 8. Jesus declares himself the light of the world. Right? There's also the laver where the priests did their ceremonial washings. Move a few chapters more. You go to John 13. You see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And then there was the altar of incense. And incense is most commonly connected with prayer. And in John 17, we hear Jesus' high priestly prayer. When John says that he tabernacled among us and that we have seen his glory, John shows us the fullness of God's glory by linking this Old Testament imagery with the New Testament fulfillment in Jesus. Now, only those with the eyes of faith can see the fullness of God. Now, in Jesus, you're not blinded by the glory of God as you would be if you saw him face to face. In Jesus, his glory comes full of grace and truth so that we might know the fullness of his love for sinners like us. But we can't just be awed by the word. We need to declare the glory of God to all those in our lives, helping them to come to know the fullness of God's love as well. And so when we think of our first application, how can we make known the glory of God? Well, John the Baptist helps us with that. If you look at verse 15, we read, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, Jesus said that John the Baptist is the greatest man born of women. But such greatness was demonstrated by declaring this truth. Jesus is greater. That's the greatest thing that John the Baptist could have ever done or said. And so what can we do to follow his example and point other people to the greatness of Jesus in our own lives? Well, just imagine you're helping a person uh, get their uh, dead battery started again or get their car started again by jumping their battery. And, you know, they, they thank you for, you know, helping them. And you say, you know, I'm so glad we could get your uh, dead battery started. Um, but I know something that's even greater than that. You know, when I think about this dead battery, I think about ourselves spiritually, right? That, that we are dead until the love of Christ comes to give us life. You know, do you know the love of Christ in your life? Do you know that kind of love? Now, you may not feel natural, you know, saying something like that to the person after helping uh, jumpstart their car, but the point is, is that the faithful witness is the one that uses whatever the situation is that they're in and somehow gives the credit and points us to what Jesus is doing, the source of the glory, the source of what is happening uh, in our lives so that they too might see his glory. We have to always give credit to where credit is due. What God has blessed us with, we share with others and we name him. We make sure they know it is because of things that he has done. Well, we see his glory in this first part uh, of this text, but if you think about it like food, it's not enough to just look at a meal, right? We want to actually partake. We want to savor that meal. And so secondly, we learn to savor his grace. First, we see his glory, and second, we savor his grace. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace 
upon grace. Now, how are we ever going to wrap our brains around his fullness, right? I mean, how full is his fullness? He's infinite. He's eternal, right? It's beyond our comprehension. And so because I'm not smart enough to explain all of that to you, I'm just going to ask my good friend, the Apostle Paul, to pray for you so that you can understand the fullness of God. Are you ready? Good. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, even more than having Paul's help to pray for us, we need Jesus, our great high priest, to intercede for us that we might know what it is to have grace upon grace. I mean, what does that mean to have grace upon grace? Well, we have received the grace of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, but God has more grace. He also gives us the grace of sanctification to make us like Christ. William Barclay said it this way, we need one grace in the days of prosperity and another in the days of adversity. We need one grace in the sunlit days of youth and another when the shadows of age begin to lengthen. The church needs one grace in days of persecution and another in the days of acceptance have come. We need one grace when we feel that we are on top of things and another when we are depressed and discouraged and near to despair. Now, I never read that quote before last Friday, but it connects with something that I've thought about for many, many years. We know that we need grace, but how can grace actually work in our lives in practical ways? Well, I like to call it the grace filter. Now, full-time ministry has a unique amount of criticism. I guess any leadership position has criticism because, you know, your head is above the sand, and so, you know, sometimes it's kind of like whack-a-mole. You kind of bring that head back down. But this idea is kind of born out of this idea of criticism, right? So when someone criticizes you, whatever you're doing, right, they criticize something, you have to realize that it's unlikely that they are right about everything that they're saying. But it's also unlikely that they're wrong about everything that they're saying. And so, of course, in some cases, it's a totally unprovoked attack. But in most cases, you have done something said something, done something, not done something, right? That is somehow uh, causing a reaction. And so the grace filter allows you to pray after receiving, right, that criticism. And you pray and you ask God, Lord, show me the kernel of truth that is coming from this person, but allow your grace to peel off the husk or blow away the chaff because most criticism kind of comes in this ugly casing, right? But help me understand, what is the kernel of truth that you want me to understand from this particular situation? Because I want to receive it from you. Now, 
I hope that helps you to take criticism and, and, and be able to respond with grace. Now, this is primarily theoretical because believe me, I don't demonstrate this in all the ways when I receive criticism, but uh, as we learn to apply it together, right, the Lord can actually work in each one of our hearts uh, as we can respond with grace uh, even when we have criticism. But the grace filter actually works the other way as well. When you receive praise, right? Somebody might be saying something to you about how wonderful you've done something. Now, maybe you've also seen that there's a lot of people, they don't like to give praise, right? They don't like to give that because they don't want the person to get a big head. And just so you know, that's a completely unbiblical concept of not giving encouragement, okay? In the scriptures, there's encouragement all over the place. The apostle Paul is constantly bringing encouragement to the people he's writing to, even the Corinthians of all people. I mean, their church was a mess. Read Corinthians and you'll see he's giving encouragement even to a church like that. But let's just say someone gives you a glowing report about something that you did or said, quickly pray, Right? Ask the Lord to give you the grace to see the kernel of truth about what that person is saying so that your soul can be encouraged. But Lord, please strip away the exaggeration that is there, lest my soul say the glory is all mine. Right? So I, I hope you can see the grace filter works in both of those directions to help our souls to keep the focus on what is the Lord teaching us? How is he directing and guiding our hearts in the direction that we should be going? And so how can we make the grace of God known in other people's lives? This is our second application, right? The only way that anyone can know grace is if they have a sense of need, if you have no sense of need, you have no need for grace. Well, at least you don't think you do. We all do, but you may not think you do. Now, I'm not saying that you should go around beating people up with the law of God so they know their need, right? Not what I'm saying. We need to trust that the Holy Spirit is already at work in the hearts of people. And as we see the Spirit at work in them, we just join the Holy Spirit in what He has already been doing in that life. Listen for ways that the person is dissatisfied with life. I mean, almost everybody complains about something. So when you hear that, figure out what are they dissatisfied with. And our job is to try to build a bridge from what they're dissatisfied with to where their only satisfaction can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Pastor Jeff prayed, or preached and prayed. <laughs> he prayed this morning too. Um, pray, preached this morning. And so as we think about building those bridges, I mean, it could be a very complex problem, so it could take a bit of time, but whatever those things are, whatever things you see, our job is to be bridge builders. But if we can connect their sense of need, and then we share the grace of God for that need, right, God gets the glory, and they get to savor his grace right along with us. But we know it's not only about words, Right? Lastly, we learn to show his gospel. First, we see his glory. Second, we savor his grace. And lastly, we show his gospel. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, the Lord revealed himself to Moses. That's true, right? He says no one's ever seen God. Well, Moses didn't see God face to face, right? God showed him just the backside of him, right? But he did give him the Decalogue, right? He gave him the Ten Commandments for him to bring down to Israel, to guide them, right, in how they are to behave, He gave them the Levitical law, teaching them how are they to worship this holy God? In what manner are they supposed to go about doing that? How are they to atone for their sin when they break God's law? There was grace in the Old Testament. But grace was not embodied anywhere like it was in Jesus Christ. Because in him came grace and truth. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed when I was going through all the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, I left out two really important pieces of the tabernacle as designed in Leviticus. When we think about the Old Testament, we think about worship, one of the key pieces we think about is sacrifice. And so what did they have outside of the tabernacle in uh, the yard area, right? They had the altar of burnt offering. And we know in John 19, Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice for sins. It says in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But the good news is that Jesus did not remain in the grave after paying the debt that we owe on the cross. The last piece of furniture, the most significant one, is the one in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. And if you recall the description in Exodus 25, it says in verse 20, the cherubim spread or shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I Shall give you. And so if you picture the, the, the mercy seat of the ark, right, you have two angels facing each other with their wings covering the mercy seat. Now, this rocked my world when my professor shared this, but if we look forward into John in chapter 20, it says in verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. What was Mary looking at? Mary was given the opportunity to enter the most holy place by faith and to see the mercy seat of God with one angel at the head and one at the foot. By faith, she could see and experience the eternal mercy of God because her Savior had arisen. The debt had been paid in full and life and mercy was brought. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, it's a lot to take in when you see this tabernacle design just covering the entire book of John. It's a glorious image that he's given to us. 
And I'm not expecting a new believer to just put all these different pieces together, right? The Lord, if you have knowledge of the Old Testament, knowledge of the New Testament, and you can see pictures like this, then you can be encouraged about the wisdom of God and the way that every piece of his word is woven together in a beautiful tapestry so that we might know what it is to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ who promised to come and tabernacle with us. He is the true tabernacle. Now, when we think about his fullness, when we think about his glory, his grace, and his truth, he has entrusted to us this truth that he's calling us to share with others. And so as we think about our third application, how can we make this truth known to those in our lives? Well, we can make the Father known in the same way that Jesus did we can point them to the scriptures, right? Invite them to church, have them come and hear the word of God's song and preached and taught. We can pray for the needs of people in our lives and, and encourage them to be looking in faith to the Lord as he answers those prayers that he might give them eyes to see that Jesus is in it all. Now we can stand in awe of the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God but we simply need to trust in his spirit to help us as we look for the needs in other people's lives that they too will be able to understand and know by experience the grace and the mercy and the truth of our Lord so that they with the eyes of faith might partake of his glory as well. Let's pray together. Fathers, we are so thankful that you have provided your word to us. We know that your grace is greater than all our sin and that you are glorified as you demonstrate your love transforming sinners into children, adopting us as your, your own. And we want this truth to be known not only in our own hearts and in our families and in our church, but we want to be a lighthouse of the truth of your gospel to the nations. Father, help us be mindful of different ways of the, the people in our lives that we can be praying for in our neighborhoods and in our, our workplace, uh, extended family, or whoever that we know of in our lives that may not know you as Savior and Lord, and that we would be faithful, just as John the Baptist was faithful to point to the one who is indeed greater, greater than all of our needs, and that they would know his grace as well. We pray it in his most holy name. Amen. Well, our God is worthy of worship. Let us